When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are discussing the Netflix series Big Mouth. So if you aren't familiar with the series, um, it is an animated series that is on Netflix. There are about five seasons of it, and it deals with uh, a series of preteen teenage children who are going through puberty um, and kind of all of the surrounding issues that come along with growing up. Um, And the show is largely based on the creator's experiences as children. Um, The main creators are Nick Kroll and Andrew Goldberg, and they uh, knew each other in childhood, and they created this show kind of based on some of the experiences that they had together and and other children that they went to school with, Um, and now as adults are reflecting back on this very tumultuous time in their lives, Um, but they use animation and kind of over-the-top representations of, of things and situations to kind of process and get through the things that happen to us when we are at this stage of life. So I wanted to approach this series a little bit differently. I know that I, we just came out of like a a few episodes where I I did a a series and I I spent each episode looking at a different season. Um, But because this is a comedy and it is animated and there aren't as many themes that carry, well, there are themes, there aren't necessarily as many plot lines that carry through the show. Um, I just kind of wanted to talk about the show as an aggregate, the themes in the show, um, and then the way that the show uses uh, representations of certain concepts, because I I think that that is the most interesting from a mental health and psychological perspective, um, how this show uses like monsters and creatures to represent basically psychological concepts. Um, so that that's the approach I'm going to take. I'm going to be more general in my overview. I'm not going to go through each Um, season, and so I hope that as you follow along, uh, if you're familiar with the show, you know what I'm talking about, and if you're not familiar with the show, um, I do highly recommend going back and watching it. Um, I am also gonna, I'm gonna make this an explicit episode, just because we are talking about a lot of sexual themes, um, and, and this, I guess, also serves as like a content warning that we will be discussing things like masturbation, um, menstruation, uh, basically anything you can think of that comes along with puberty, because that those do play big roles in the show. Um, and while I do think that it is uh, a nature of the show and something that is very important is to be able to talk about these things, I do want to be conscious that there are some younger listeners, so I'm going to mark this episode as explicit just because of the content discussed. I think with that, uh, let's just dive in to the show Big Mouth. And, you know, again, although I'm not going to go through each season in, like, great detail, I do want to highlight some of the main characters that that will come up. 
um, as as I'm discussing. And our first, our main character, like I said, are named after the creators of the show. So Nick and Andrew are the main two characters. They are boys who are in their like preteens, teenage year, early teen years. Um, they've been friends through all of their childhood. They live in the same neighborhood, go to the same school, uh, and they kind of embark on this journey through puberty together. Um, although something that is that is played up a lot is that Andrew begins puberty a lot sooner, so he experiences some of these things that are, are happening in the show much more quickly than his peers, and particularly more quickly than Nick. Um, and Nick is kind of portrayed as like a late bloomer. He doesn't begin to hit signs of puberty at the same time as a lot of his peers. And so that becomes one of the conflicts of the show is trying to understand the experience of your friends who maybe are going through puberty or aren't going through puberty yet and how there can be like a mismatch as as people start to grow up and experience puberty in different ways. So those are the two main characters. Uh, they each have uh, families. So Andrew is an only child He and he lives with his mother and father. And then Nick uh, lives with his mother and father, and then his older sister and his older brother. So that's kind of their family structure. And throughout throughout the series, also we t- we see that Andrew really covets Nick's family. He thinks that they are better <laughs> than his family, and he is always wanting to spend time with them. Um, and I I will be discussing kind of the way that parenting is represented in the show because I think they did they do show a really wide variety. Um, of parenting styles in the show that in a, in a very interesting way, but I will get into that later. Uh, we also have uh, another friend of Nick and Andrew is a, a young girl named Jessie. Uh, she has um, a mom and dad. She's an only child with a mom and a dad, but her parents get divorced and her mom comes out as gay. I want to say like season two or three, uh, but this, so that is a, a kind of her family structure and she also is going through puberty um, but also while she's going through this like disruption to her family structure. Uh, and then lastly, we have Jay and Missy. Jay Bilzerian is, uh, he's a boy in the friend group, but he's kind of on the edge of the friend group because he's a very odd <laughs> child. He's a, uh, he doesn't seem, I, I guess I would say this, he doesn't seem well socialized, and that's largely in part to the fact that he is experiencing what is would be called neglect from his parents, who are very absentee. He has older brothers who like bully him and are very difficult for him to live with, and so Jay is kind of like this boy on the edge. And then Missy, Missy is almost exactly the opposite. She is like goody two shoes, top of her class, very social justice minded, socially active, and she has two parents who are in an interracial marriage, and they're like hippy dippy <laughs> people, um, and so. Uh, one of the things that actually Missy, Missy's character ends up going through uh, throughout the show is wrestling with her racial identity as um, a biracial person with with uh, parents who are in a, in a racial relationship. So you can see how like very quickly there is so much content for this show to cover, and as the sh- you know there are of course other characters in the show, but as the show goes on, all of the relationships between the main characters and the other children in the school. Um, become become more complex, um, and we see them kind of shift and move through who they are loyal to, or who they are, I guess, comfortable with or or familiar with. And I I thought that was that's one of my favorite aspects of this show is I think that so represents what friendships are like 
at that age and that like middle school, beginning of high school age where everything is changing so fast. People are growing up maybe faster than others. Some people want to still be like children. Some people are wanting to grow up very fast and be adults as soon as possible. Um, and navigating through those um, those relationships as all these, these things are changing and all these identities are, are coming to the forefront is really difficult. Um, and I, I feel like I really related, I really relate to that aspect of the show. Now, one thing that is important is that this is a show, although it is about children, it is for adults looking back on themselves um, at this time. So, you know, someone like me is the target audience for the show of like, I'm far enough removed from puberty and this like time in my life that I can look back on it through the lens of this show and, you know, laugh or process. Um, and it's not, it doesn't feel too real. And it's also, you know, just like content wise, it's not really appropriate for a younger audience. So it really is for adults to be kind of looking back on this time in their life. Um, so I want to talk about, I found a couple of articles um, that had some really interesting things to say, and then uh, I wanted to, so I weave those in, but I want to talk about the themes and then we'll move into the representation of the concepts. So uh, one of the first things that I think is really, really interesting about Big Mouth is that it really pushes against these kind of heteronormative portrayals of puberty. So in a lot of coming-of-age media particularly that deals with puberty, a lot of our media is based around like the male experience of puberty. So Big Mouth really subverts that because it includes so many female-centered or women-centered stories um, about puberty, about things like menstruation, female masturbation is addressed, and it's also shown in ways that it's not normally shown in. So for example, there are quite a few, there's, there's a quite a long episode arc about Jessie, one of the main characters, getting her period for the first time, and there is a lot of time spent on her experience, kind of her coming to the coming to terms with the fact that this is something that's going to be happening to her for the rest, not the rest of her life, but for a very large portion of her adult life, um, wrestling with being one of the only girls who's who got her period. She's getting it first, you know, feeling like she doesn't know how to handle it. They really spend a lot of time on this concept and kind of the overall conclusion that the character comes to is that like, yeah, this isn't my favorite part of being alive, but it is a, an important part of my life because it's something that my body is doing. And she kind of, she does get to a point where she like reconciles with it. Whereas I think in other forms of media, we see periods or menstruation uh, shown to be like really gross or like something you try to avoid or you don't talk about, right? We have all these euphemisms for it, like Aunt Flo coming to visit or the red dragon. Uh, those are some that I'm familiar with. Um, you know, but we, we don't talk very uh, plainly about periods or, or menstruating um, and, or, you know, kind of the cycle around it. And so uh, that in itself is kind of against the heteronormative portrayal, right, of like female puberty and female, the process that, that the female body goes through is not something to be ashamed of or something to hide and is just as important as the process that the male body is going through. And one of the articles they found also pointed out that these portrayals are educational because they are accurate. They're not, I mean, it is exaggerated because it's an animated show and they're like, 
tampon singing songs, <laughs> but overall the information and the accuracy with which the concepts or the, the situations are portrayed with are, are educational and are not like misinformed. And there are even scenes in the show in which the characters, because they are children, have like the wrong idea about certain things. And we see them learning and coming to know more about their bodies um, and about the way that they relate to each other. So in- inherently, it's also very educational. Another way in which it pushes against this like heteronormative portrayal is that there are a lot of characters and episodes that deal with issues of gender and sexuality. For example, there's about a three-episode arc where the kids are all at camp, um, where there is a, a young a young girl who is trans, and they all remember her from her dead name um, when, when she was assigned a boy's name, and she's now coming back to camp at, you know, living in her identity as a girl, and she gets to have conversations with the other kids at camp about her experience with gender, with transitioning, with coming out to her parents, and um, like there's a joke about it wasn't until her mom listened to Lady Gaga that she became accepting, but they, like, they, they really, the show gives a lot of time to this story and allowing this child to, like, be very upfront about her experience, and one of the things that's that's happening throughout the show is that as the children reach puberty, they are assigned a hormone monster, and that kind of represents, like, your raging, like, blossoming hormones <laughs> when you hit puberty, and so the the character, the trans character, shares with, I believe it's with Jessie, she's having a conversation with Jessie, and the children are all aware that they each have hormone monsters. It's like they, they can see each other's hormone monsters. Like it's something that the children are all aware of, even the parents are. It's kind of like Toy Story. <laughs> um, but so she's sharing with Jessie like kind of her experience of coming to understand her gender identity and how that played out with her hormone monster in that she was assigned a male hormone monster who was essentially encouraging her to be more male and she uh, did not like fit with that right like that 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 hormone monster or that experience of puberty did not fit with her sense her sense of self right her her identity as a girl this i think is kind of a really interesting representation of dysphoria right of like the child sees themselves as a girl right Ident- their gender identity is as a girl or a woman um but there are biological processes happening in their body that don't match up with that that sense of identity right so the experience of puberty is in itself dysphoria because it's dysphoric because it's not matching up right like the experience of puberty is not matching up with what the child is expecting based on their gender identity Um, and this is a case of a child who was assigned male at birth but identifies as a girl Um, and that within the show we come to find out that um, after her parents listened to Lady Gaga and came around and were able to understand her identity they take her to the doctor where she's given puberty bloggers and the puberty blockers make the hormone monster go away. So now this child has the space to explore her identity without the pressure of a puberty experience that doesn't match her gender identity. And so it, it's it's really interesting episode because the or series of episodes because the child the trans child is getting to explain this to the other children like in in the language that they all use and it's it's made very accessible. It's very simple and, and we see that the children don't get it right right away, right? Like the other kids, um, like the boys at the camp make some transphobic comments and are like, well, last time you were here, 
we called you so-and-so and now you're somebody else and the girls at the camp can't accept her right away either and trying to make her be more feminine um, when she she doesn't identify as like overtly feminine in that way or or, or like she's like a tomboy she's like a, a girl that likes to play sports and look at dead animals in the forest and like look at weird things but she's a girl um and so we see the kids kind of like kind of figuring out all together um how to how to kind of work through this issue now so far that's been the only storyline in the show that has overtly dealt with gender in that way um, and so I am hoping that as they do more seasons, that they are able to bring in more stories of either trans kids or non-binary and non-conforming kids so that um, like those those messages get put into the show. But I thought that was just so interesting that the show was able to give that much time and show kind of all these different facets of a child who's transitioning um, and what they are dealing with. And they are pretty explicit in that like the child is not, did not like go get gender confirming surgery right there wasn't like a radical move to do all this like surgery or hormone replacements like the child is on puberty blockers which just blocks one set of hormones it doesn't introduce new hormones it doesn't um, activate any new changing type of puberty but it just blocks puberty so that the child has time to kind of catch up and and explore their identity. So I, I really thought that was so well done. Um, now, sexual identity, I think, is represented a lot better and a lot more frequently in the show. Um, there are children in the show who identify as gay, as bisexual, pansexual, and it's, like, sexuality is seen as, like, part of puberty, right? Of, like, not only are you, you get your hormone monster where you are dealing with, like, these feelings of hormones and, like, sexual attraction, but with the hormone monster, the children are working out, like, well, who am I attracted to? Um, and throughout the show, we see pretty much every single one of the main characters kind of have to have a, a situation where they are like, well, I didn't expect I would be attracted to this person, or I didn't think that I would like this type of person. Um, and they kind of have to talk it through and realize it. And sometimes they come to the rationalization that their sexuality is different than they thought, or that it is exactly the way they thought it was, and this was just a different experience. Um, but every child gets the opportunity to kind of not only explore what their sexuality will be and their sexual identity, but to also, like, express it in different ways. And I think it is really cool that the show does such a good job of representing non-monosexual identities, which, if you've never heard that term before, um, that is kind of like the umbrella term for anyone who is attracted to more than one gender. So, not like, Monosexual would be you're only attracted to one particular gender, and non-monosexual people are attracted to a multitude, like two plus, basically, <laughs> of, of gender identities. Um, and I thought that was so cool to to have those representations in the show and to have the kids wrestle with the conversations around people coming out as being non-monosexual. Like, for example, Jay, who I mentioned before as, as being one of the main characters, um, realizes that he identifies as bisexual and um, he has to deal with people making assumptions or telling him that, well, he's really just gay, uh, you know, he might as well just admit it or that he's, you know, faking it and he has to deal with the fact that people don't think he's as cool as the uh, classmate he has who, who is pansexual and they're, they're shown to be like some tension there within the different identities and the children having to resolve that like 
that there may be differences between bisexual and pansexual people, but they are part of the, the larger community and can understand the experience of being attracted to more than one type of, of gender. Um, and, and it just, I think it's just so cool to have that representation. And I think because again, I, like I said, I'm in like the target audience for, for this type of show. Um, it was really helpful to see that this representation of like children at that age wrestling with this, because as someone who went through a a similar process of like identifying and, and having to wrestle with how I identified, um, it really feels less isolating to know that there were other people who had this similar experience because so much of this is autobiographical for the creators of the show. Um, it's really wonderful to see kind of like an honesty about like, this is what it was like when we were at this age. Um, and not having to feel like you have to have everything all figured out. Like you have to know your sexuality and your gender identity and all of these things, like all of your identities, the minute you hit puberty, like you get time to figure it out. And the the people around me were most likely going through a similar thing as well. So that's, that's what I really like about that. So that's to wrap up, that's kind of like the pushing against this normative portrayal of puberty, like oh, kind of expanding the way that puberty is portrayed and giving more opportunities for exploration. Um, that's obviously like one of the very big themes of the show. In addition to puberty representation, we also have a lot of parenting styles being represented. So I, I mentioned this before when I ran through the characters, but I want to spend some more time with it. Um, so uh, I'm going to start with Andrew's family. So Andrew's parents, I think, represent what we might consider a more traditional or like rigid gender roles in a family. Um, there, He has a, a mother and a father. The mom is portrayed to be more submissive. She is really avoidant of conflict. She doesn't try to get... Um, she doesn't try to get in between Andrew and his father when they're fighting, or if she does, she's just trying to defuse, not trying to um, prolong any conflict. Um, and and on the opposite end of her is his father, who is pretty aggressive. He seemed to be very angry. He's usually yelling <laughs> all of his lines. Um, but we get to see in one of the later seasons is that the way that Andrew's father talks to him is the way that fathers have always talked to their sons in this family. So it's a it's a really great portrayal of kind of this like intergenerational process of fathers being angry towards sons and it's addressed in that uh in the episode that this is how they've been taught to say I love you and Andrew could be the one to break the cycle of not having to lean into anger um to show care for people or to protect himself but of being able to be uh, to express himself in, in different ways that aren't so prescribed by, like, generation or gender. Um, and so Andrew's family, there is, there's this, like, rigid gender rules. They are pretty harsh on Andrew. He does receive, like, punishments. Um, but we also see that Andrew tests the boundaries of his parents a lot. He, he not just his parents, but Andrew kind of tests the boundaries of what he can do. He's largely considered to be, like, the most inappropriate child in the show. He really struggles with, like, working through puberty and kind of getting a handle on some of the urges that he's experiencing. Um, And so we see him really bumping against the 
like rigidity of his family like his parents have uh, certain expectations for him and he can't quite meet them um, but because of this dynamic between his mom and his dad there isn't much like grace or forgiveness for him um, when he bumps up against those boundaries so that's like one type of family we see um, then we have Nick uh, his family like I said he's he's got the uh, mother and a father his mother is uh, she's a little more assertive. She kind of takes, uh, not necessarily takes control, but she makes decisions that are supported within the family. Um, and then Nick's father is, uh, always the one to defer to the mother. Um, he's portrayed as like this kind of, not as like overly sensitive, like he's always about to cry or he's always telling Nick like how much he loves him and saying things like men shouldn't be afraid to say that they love each other. Um, but we also see that between the two parents in, in Nick's family, there's this more permissive parenting style where uh, maybe consequences for actions aren't given out as much. And these are the types of parents who are going to say, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. <laughs> That's kind of like the the archetype that these these parents fulfill. And again, like I said, we see that Andrew is very jealous of this family, that Nick's family, uh, even Jay is shown to be like very jealous of Nick's family. Nick's family is seen kind of set up to be like the best example of like a nuclear family within this universe of Big Mouth. Um, But at the same time, Nick has a lot of struggles with his parents and we see him really wrestling with how to relate to his dad um, who, like, Nick just does not want to be a very sensitive man in the way that his dad is, um, and we see him really wrestling with how will he identify himself, like, what what will his be, what will Nick's masculinity look like, because he doesn't want to model it after his father, um, and so he, he, just like Andrew, he's bumping up against, um, kind of his parents and their roles, but they have more flexibility to talk with him, accept him, um, and, and, you know, there are consequences put in place. It's, you know, it's not a totally lawless <laughs> household. Um, but I would say that if comparing all these, these families that, Nick's family is kind of portrayed to be the best to strive for. Then we have Jay's family, um, who his, he has a mother and a father who are absentee, like to, to a degree that's almost difficult to watch. So Jay's father is like a lawyer. He is like a very macho guy. He's over the top. He has lots of affairs. He also seems to be doing borderline criminal activity (laughs) through his law firm. He's seen as like, and he's like a very aggressive masculinity. So in contrast, I think to Andrew's dad, who's seen as like, he's aggressive, angry, like a masculine guy, but Jay's dad is shown to be like that to the nth degree, um, to the point where he can't handle his son. He can't handle emotions around his son. He's very dismissive of Jay. Um, There's like no way that it's possible for Jay to talk to his dad about being bisexual or experiencing some of these, these attractions to other men or other boys. Um, there's like no room for that. And then Jay's mother is shown to be like very dependent on substances. She's like a deeply unhappy woman who is pretty much always 
like blasted out of her mind with um alcohol or pills um and so she just like isn't it's not possible for her to be emotionally present for her children and so jay and his two older brothers are basically like left to their own devices and left to like raise each other and because none of them have had a good parental uh role model the older brothers are like horrible to jay and like torture him and that becomes uh a, a large part of jay's story is is really not having anywhere to go because even his brothers um are not a safe haven for him and you know i love attachment style i love attachment theory and i think jay really for me represents um what would be called a disorganized attachment um where when he gets close to the other children or begins a relationship he really has a lot of difficulty managing himself in the relationship and particularly managing rejection um, and we see several times where Jay is rejected by either as a friend or as a romantic uh, partner. He's rejected by the, the children in his class and he just absolutely spirals. And we see him, like, the rest of his life is disorganized too. Like, when I say disorganized attachment, it, it means this way where you react to the people you are close to with, with both fear um and also wanting to pull close to them so at the same time you fear them wanting to be close to them because experiences in childhood have, have taught you that objects of affection or of love will hurt you like that it's a guarantee that they will hurt you and that they will hurt you very badly and this type of attachment is is very common in in children who have been neglected um or physically well physically and emotionally uh, abused, and so we see that Jay is was being neglected. He's being emotionally neglected, but he's also being like physically neglected, and and his his physical needs of like getting food and shelter are not always met. Um, and in fact, like I said, Nick's family is being held up as like the example, and Jay is like always trying to sneak into their attic to live in Nick's house. Or uh, there's like a whole a whole arc where uh he his. Nick's mom actually lets Jay move in because she's like appalled at the way that he's treated and we see Jay just be like absolutely blown away that someone's someone who is a mother would want to spend time with him or care about him and he just like can't wrap his mind around it and that is uh, a component of disorganized attachment so there's my <laughs> there's me getting my psychological <laughs> theories in there but um you know, and, and Jay, although his, his story is very sad, um, I think having his parents be the way that they are really demonstrates how important it is for young people and young children to have somebody in their life that can provide the love and the structure that a parent would, um, and that without them, there are consequences that for, for the child, through no fault of the child, but that there are consequences um, that's something to keep in mind also when we interact with other people right like we don't we don't know their background and if you just were to meet a character like jay out in the wild they would seem to be insane <laughs> like to be like just so out of control or whatever but like the reality is is that that jay's behavior is largely a function of his environment and, and what do you how he was raised and he was never really given a chance to behave another way this is kind of this is kind of it 
because this is what has worked for so long. Um, and so, and we do see that as as we go through the seasons, Jay gets has more and more secure relationships with the other children, uh, or with other adults like Nick's Nick's parents, um, that kind of help center him and and change the way he relates to people. And so, which I think is also an amazing representation that. This, it's not the end-all be-all if your parents were like this or they neglected or abused you, that it is still possible to earn a, a security and attachment to other people. Um, and it doesn't have to be like exactly in early childhood. It can be later on, um, but that it is possible, right? It's not like a life sentence to have parents who are as horrible as Jay's parents, um, that there there are other ways to find and to get what you need. Um Okay, so next we have Jesse's family who, like I said, they're going through a divorce. Um, Jesse's dad is kind of like stereotypical stoner guy. Uh, he's like kind of always lazing around the house. He's always wearing a hoodie and sweatpants. Seem to be like, hi. Um, just kind of like a, a never really grew up past college guy. Um, and her mom is like a very professional woman, like ambitious go-getter, and they really do seem to be quite mismatches, um, and in the process of her parents going through a divorce, Jessie's mom, you know, opens up to her and tells her that she's attracted to women, in fact, she's, um, she enters into a relationship with a woman, and Jessie is, like, really wrestling with the reality that her parents are not, um, who she thought they were, and they're not going to be together forever, and Jessie's mom, um, wants to move into the city uh, after divorcing her dad, and so Jess, there's even a portion of the show where Jesse has to like, move away from her friends, and she's in the city, and she's like pulled away from her social support, and she's still mad at her mom for not making it work, um, and and you know honestly Jesse's Jesse's storylines are can be very like emotionally raw, um, and I think that this aspect of her wrestling with her her parents and her mom's identity uh, is is very honest, um, and, it, and it, I think strikes up some interesting conversations. And I think for a lot of kids or a lot of adults who are looking back on this time in childhood, like this struggle of parents splitting up, um, parents entering into new relationships is very relatable and is something that you know. I, again, I think getting to watch the 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 character of Jesse process it in real time and not immediately be okay with it. In fact, it continues to come up as an issue for her as then her dad enters into a new relationship and is going to have a child with his new girlfriend. And Jessie, you know, she goes back and forth between making peace with her parents being split up and and not being able to handle it. And I just think that it's such an, uh, like an honest portrayal of someone that age dealing with this split in their parents and I think also having there only be one parental group in the main characters who are going through a divorce is an interesting choice because I think it would be really easy to um do this retrospective show and to be like oh well you know 50% of marriages end in divorce like everybody was divorced and and have it be um that like you know a lot of the children going through this but I think that the way that the show portrays families, gives each character an opportunity to deal with different types of family structures. Um, and, and I really like that, that it 
it's not a cynical show, right? Like, not everyone is going to get divorced or cheat on each other or do whatever. Like, they're, I, I think it's, it, it's not cynical, it's honest. Um, and Jesse's experience is an honest experience. It's not necessarily 100% a cynical experience, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and then the last parents that I think are, are very interesting or family structure is uh, Missy's family. And like I said, uh, her parents are in an interracial relationship, but they're also like very hippie dippy. They are all like vegan. They don't eat chocolate. They only eat carob. <laughs> and at the beginning of the show, we see that Missy is very happy with her family. Um, she's an only child, but she does a lot of activities with her parents. They spend a lot of time together. They have like secret handshakes and songs and kind of all these special rituals together. Um, but, you know, an interesting plotline that Missy gets is that later on into some of the seasons, she meets her cousins from her dad's side and her dad is black. And so she meets her, her, her cousins who I believe they're from Atlanta and they are very the the way they experience their racial identity is very different than the way that Missy did and she's introduced into this kind of like cultural identity they teach her about how to take care of black hair they teach her about like different cultural words that the community uses um and they they kind of represent uh, a different side of her racial identity than Missy was exposed to before and so then when she goes home and is kind of figuring out how does she fit into as a biracial person how does she fit into this family with her parents with her her white mom um but with her dad not being not expressing his racial identity in the same way that her cousins do um and so that that becomes a big big piece of of missy's family now missy's parents are also shown to be very permissive um and missy is like a goody two-shoes quite honestly and so for most of the show, there is no, like, downside to her parents being very permissive until we get to the last season where Missy is struggling with identity. She's also really struggling with her relationships with some of the other girls at school, and she goes down a, a path where she's having so much interpersonal difficulty that it begins to affect other areas of her life, and she become she kind of starts acting out essentially she she, she shuts herself away and and becomes um she's having difficulty communicating with her parents and we see that because her parents had this very permissive style of parenting and they don't quite know how to communicate with her um that she she's not getting the support she needs from her parents in fact it's not until one of her cousins calls her that she's able to um have a strong enough footing to kind of get out of the the pit she she was in uh, quite literally she's like living in her room like covered in trash it's like it's like a trash pit um but again like you know missy's parents aren't necessarily all bad but i think this show is kind of presenting like this is a, st a type of of parenting it's presented through like stereotypes and exaggerations because it's it's a comedy animated show but just presenting missy's parents as a type of parent um and and kind of the the natural consequences of that type of parenting and again, no one of the families is, is necessarily the best, although I would say Nick and, and Missy's are kind of like the least <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, each, each family is shown to have difficulties and each parenting style is shown to have uh, like short-falling failings. 
And and I think, again, because it's just such an honest look at these situations, that for the people who are, as adults watching this show, can look at the 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 parents and relate to them in multiple ways, right? Relate to them as, like, avatars of their parents when they were growing up. Uh, you know, we can see them as, as our parents um, and, and kind of maybe have some forgiveness or some understanding for our parents. Um, but then also to look at them, you know, as parents or as adults now and say, like, oh, is that uh, something, you know, do I need to be aware of if that's how I, what type of parenting style I'm bringing? Um, and maybe how that could play out. And again, you know, it's all exaggerated, but there are, you know, lessons to be learned there. Um, so those are some of the main family structures we see. Um, there are, you know, of course, other characters, lots of other families and, and parent relationships, but I thought those were kind of the main, um, types and kind of illustrated again how, uh, how these this these styles of parenting can impact children, especially as they move through this time of development um, in puberty. Um, okay, I want to now talk about this this article actually that I I found um, in a genre theory uh, magazine. Um, it's called Animation and the Queering of the Body in Big Mouth by uh, the author's last name is Pyle, and they had a really interesting analysis of the aesthetic of the show. So the type of animation and also the style in which the show exaggerates things. So, I, you know, I just was talking about, it's, it's all about an exaggeration. And so this article talked about um, seeing Big Mouth as what is called body horror or body genre, um, which in traditional live action media is a type of, of, either horror or genre work that is purely emotional. So body horror is typically a, a genre where the the horror is construed through like very graphic representations of the body or like um, you know mutilation to the body. So an example of, of body horror being used in a film would be Black Swan. Um, so if you've ever seen Black Swan, um, you'll know that there are there's symbolism throughout the film that's where the main character, the main ballerina, is shown to be like literally transforming into not a full-on swan, but like a, some type of swan woman. Um, and she's there's scenes where she's pulling feathers out of her skin. She's like pulling at her hangnails. Her eyes become red and change color. Uh, it's like a very visceral imagery of her her body actually transforming into not necessarily a, it's not very aesthetically pleasing the 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 swan woman she's turning into was quite horrifying that's the body horror and the experience that the audience has when watching body horror is typically meant to be very emotional very affective right like we are reacting to kind of the grotesque and um there's not a lot of room for like thinking it through it's it's just meant to to rise out of a reaction so this piece was talking about how big mouth is leaning into that type of body horror to bring you back to the feeling of being in puberty right of being 13 and going through these things and the 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 body horror or I guess more accurately, the body genre because it's not all of it is meant to be scary some of it is right there are pieces of Big Mouth where um, there's like thunderstorms and, and lightning 
uh, to construe, like, ooh, something spooky is coming, but there's also, um, like, just animated vaginas and penises, like, just body parts that are not necessarily grotesque, but are exaggerated and, and acting in a, a fashion that they would not, right? They're, they're talking and they don't talk. Um, and so this body genre, is, is it serves to pull us back to the emotional experience of puberty, but then what Big Mouth does differently is it takes breaks from that affective experience. So, for example, the show is really self-referential. It's constantly addressing the fact that it is a show, like mentions of the writer and producers, like the characters will sometimes turn toward the fourth wall and talk directly to the audience. And those um, kind of referential referential references (laughs) um, serve to pull us away from the feeling and bring us back to the thinking aspect. So again, in this article, the author is saying that that combination um, is really what makes it interesting and makes it more educational and able for us to deal with like the big themes of Big Mouth rather than just sinking us into the feeling of being in puberty and, and kind of being like stuck there. It is the cognitive and social the self-referential aspects of the show that helps us to process it and could be, you know, not to be too dramatic, but could be healing and that we move through those experiences rather than just reliving them over and over again through the show. Um, There's a really great quote that I want to read from this article that is about why this, these exaggerated body parts are so useful. And they also, that also helps us to, relate to a variety of experiences. It makes more experiences accessible because all the experiences are exaggerated. So the quote from Pyle is, we do not necessarily identify with Nick's exaggeratedly large mouth or Jessie's experience of talking to her vagina, but with the emotional and mental themes they exaggeratedly produce. We identify with the experience of feeling idiosyncratic and freakish and with the experience of trying to navigate life through a body that feels increasingly foreign. And, and I thought that was just mwah, beautiful. I had to cite them and use that quote because it. I think that is really what the experience of the show is, is that, yes, they're cartoon characters. They look ridiculous. They are talking to giant hormone monsters covered in hair, which is not real and is exaggerated. But it's not the exact experience that we are identifying with, right? The experience of talking to a hormone monster. But it is the experience of feeling like all of a sudden your body has changed and you don't have control over what it does in the same way that you did before, right? The way that your relationship to your body changes through puberty and navigating through this changing body and this changing feeling of lack of control, that is what puberty is all about. And that is the experience the show is bringing us. And then again, giving us breaks, pulling us back out, making a, uh, jokes that we as adults understand that we wouldn't understand, you know, being back in that time, pulling us back to the present day. And so it's that push and pull between reminding us of what it was like and then pulling us back to today is what allows for the, the conversation and the processing to happen. Um, and in fact, in the last season of the show, there is a, a moment where one of the hormone monsters turns to the audience and is like, hey, remember, these are fake, right? The, the, the hormone monsters are the kids. They're not talking to, uh, to monsters, they're talking to each other. Um, 
or, or talking to themselves and it's this note like referencing of that that is what is happening that allows us as the audience to relate to the experience right of like yes of course i didn't talk to a hormone monster when i was growing up but i did have the experience of like what the heck is going on in my body and why don't i have control of it and trying to figure it out i, I can relate to that experience so uh, I highly recommend that article. It's I, I linked it in um, the sources page, but it's um, in, a, in a magazine called Genre Theory, and I, I, I just thought it was it was really interesting. Um, so those are, I think, kind of like the themes and the, and the storytelling aspects of the show that I wanted to talk about. I want to spend the next few minutes kind of talking about the representation of some of the concepts um, that I've, I've already talked about a little bit, and, and how the show uses these representations to externalize the, the problem, which is a, a concept that is used in, in certain types of psychotherapy, of externalizing the problem, because when we detach the problem from ourselves, we can reduce a lot of the shame we have around the problem, right? For example, I've already mentioned the hormone monsters, right? So detaching the hormone monster from the self, right? Of placing it in the hairy goat-like body (laughs) of the hormone monster allows the audience and the character to view this as something outside of themselves, right? Something that is not inherently to blame, right? They aren't, aren't the ones to blame, but still something that exists in the world in which we can act change upon, right? So the hormone monster just appears. We do not invite it. We do not create the hormone monster. It it, it brings with it a series of problems, <laughs> but we externalize that as the hormone monster and all of the problems coming with us as part of the monster. And that allows then the character to figure out how to deal with this other thing. And we do this in certain types of psychotherapy, particularly narrative therapy, where we ask the, the client to speak about the, the problem as it, it as if it is not centered within themselves. Because a lot of the problems that we go through are, are not inherently from us, right? There are things that we deal with in our life that are just happening to us, or we may play a role in them, but we aren't 100% in control of them. And so when we externalize them, we can observe them from a little bit of a distance and and be able to come up with more creative solutions to them because they are no longer so tied to our inner sense of self, right? So we, we, we put them outside. And so I thought that the, the way that the show represents some of these things is this externalizing of the problem and allows us to see the uh, different ways in which different people interact with these issues, right? Everybody has a hormone monster as they grow up um, in in the show, <laughs> right? Not Again, not in real life. In the show, everyone gets a hormone monster, and, and the hormone monsters all have different personalities that interact with the children um, in different ways. And some of the children actually do have the same hormone monsters. They, they share a hormone monster, and the children with different personalities interact with the the monster in different ways. So I just think that it's such a cool concept and not just in that showing that not all of these things are our fault, right? And that that we can better address them when we see them as outside of ourselves, but also helps us to um, see how other people around us deal with, with similar situations, right? How are the other people around us dealing with the hormone monster, and also it makes it universal, right? We all have this thing that exists outside of us ourselves. So 
I think I've talked enough about the concept. What are some of the ways that the show does this? So, you know, again, hormone monsters. These are creatures that show up when the child essentially starts puberty. Um, they are kind of like the harbinger of, of puberty beginning. And they p- represent like pure id. Like the hormone monsters want to have every type of sexual contact with every person that they they come into contact with. Um, They are usually seen to be encouraging the children to kind of play out these like sexual desires that they have. And and they're seen to be like largely not uncontrollable, but like difficult to control (laughs) that they're, they're always like kind of talking in the ear of the child. They're always around. Um, and we see in which the way that the children interact with the hormone monster, um, the hormone monster will say something, you know, pretty egregious about a sexual act. And then we see the child responding back to them and saying like, no, I can't do that right now. Or, you know, I'm, I don't know how to do that. Or we see the children like interacting with the hormone monster and kind of imposing their like ego and self-control on the hormone monster. So again, by externalizing it, the child appears to have more control over it, right? The child can discuss, fight back, <laughs> disagree uh, with the hormone monster rather than it just being this like uncontrollable force that comes from within them. It is externalized. So that's that's the first like creature we encounter. Um, the The show also uses the similar concept to deal with issues of mental health. So um, anxiety is actually portrayed as a mosquito um, that multiplies. So the more anxious thoughts that the child has, the more mosquitoes is seen bugging around, like buzzing around them. And the mosquito speaks to the child and basically will say the things that if you experience anxiety, you will experience as, as internal thoughts. So it, you know, the mosquito will say things like, um, everybody hates you. Everybody's looking at you. Why would you do something like that? It's these like, uh, perseverative anxious thoughts. The mosquito is saying to the child. So again, it's externalized. It's coming from the source of the mosquito. Um, and the children have to learn how to deal with it. And, and it is so interesting the way the show introduces like the anxiety mosquito is the first time it shows up. Um, the kids don't really know what it is. They like, you know, they think it's a bug. They try to brush it away. Um, and they, they then get so caught up in the kind of strain of anxious thoughts that the mosquito is saying back to them that they have a difficult time kind of pulling out of essentially the, the anxiety spiral. Um, and it's not until they go to therapy <laughs> uh, and get support from the people in their life that they're able to deal with the anxiety mosquito. Um, and after the anxiety mosquito is introduced, we see it pop back up in later seasons whenever the children start to experience anxiety again. So, and, and I thought that mosquito was such a great representation of anxiety because it feels like you slap one anxious thought away, you know, two more pop up in its place and that they're so small and moving so quickly and it's hard to control them, um, you know, and you can waste all of your energy trying to swat them all away or you could focus your energy on in a way to prevent them from ever coming close to you, right? Of like, you know, the real world example would be like lighting your citronella candle rather than slapping at every mosquito that comes near you. So um, I think it's such a useful metaphor of like this. 
this is what anxiety can be like. Of it feels, it feels busy. It feels loud. There's like buzzing, like literal buzzing, <laughs> always happening, um, and that it's like a tiny, a thousand tiny problems to focus on. Um, and so I think that this show does a really great job of if you have anxiety or or anxious thoughts, you can relate to that. And if you don't have anxiety, you can see this experience as like a good portrayal of what it might be like inside the mind of someone you care about who has anxiety. So I think it works for both ways of people relating to it, but also helping people to understand um, what their their loved ones may be going through. So that is how anxiety is represented. Um, Depression is represented as a big cat, (laughs) big, like purple fluffy cat. And uh, Jessie is the one who who experiences the depression cat the most, and she will the cat will is like has like a southern lady voice. <laughs> she like she's very she talks very slow, like very sweet, like syrupy voice, um, and she will just lay on top of Jessie. She's heavy when when Jessie is interaction interacting with the depression cat. She seemed to be like very tired, and the cat will say things to her like. Well, I think a good idea would be to just lay in bed all day and knock it up and, you know, eat six bags of Doritos in your bed and not talk to anyone. Like, those are the types of things that the depression cat is saying to Jessie. And we see her really struggle to, once the cat has gotten a hold of her, we see her really struggle with, like, getting out of bed, kind of fighting off the presence of the cat. Um, and, you know, in contrast to anxiety, the cat is one large creature, whereas the anxiety mosquitoes are many small ones. And again, I thought that was such a wonderful example of how depression can feel. It can feel like this very oppressive presence on you of something heavy on you that's difficult to get out from underneath. And it just seems so big, so impossible to get around or over. Um, and we, we see that the depression cat and the hormone monster interact with each other and that Jesse's hormone monster doesn't quite know how to deal with the depression and the depression kind of also consumes the hormone monster. And I think, again, this is just such a great representation of how like depression can impact other aspects of your life. Like it can impact things like sexual functioning and libido, um, which would be the domain of the hormone monster. Um, and that you know, depression just does become this, like, large cat overflowing everything. And, you know, if you're allergic to cats, then maybe this isn't the best metaphor. But this idea of, like, something that's just, it just seems too big to get out from underneath. It seems to be all-consuming. That that can be the experience of depression. Um, And again, Jessie, we see her, she doesn't, she's not able to get out from underneath the cat, <laughs> without support from other people. Um, and we see her learn how to ask for help, how to ask for support. And as she is better able to do that, she is better able to kind of reject the cat, keep it at arm's length, much like she does with her period. She acknowledges that it's going to be part of her life, but that it doesn't have to consume her. Um, and she's able to implement, um, you know, some of these these interventions that she learns at therapy and, uh, you know, reaching out to other people for help. Um, and we see her continue to do that throughout the show after she, she learns that lesson. But I just really, I really love the <laughs> depression cat. I think it is such a good example, um, such a good way to externalize that. Now, a, a creature that's introduced 
alongside anxiety, mosquito, and depression cat is the gratitude. Um, and this is actually something that the children learn as a way to combat the anxiety mosquitoes and the depression cat. And gratitude is a reminder to do gratitude. And it is a toad that tells them what he's thankful for and engages them in an activity to say, what are they grateful for? And I think the gratitude is so cute. Um, and again, a, an interesting thing of like externalizing, not just the problems, but externalizing the things that help, right? Of like the gratitude comes from outside of them to help them battle the problems that are also outside of them. Um, and the gratitude will be seen to just like kind of hop into their hand when it's when when they need a reminder that that they need to do gratitude to help themselves help them deal with this issue. Um, and, you know, it is very simplistic, right? It's like, just doing gratitude in the real world isn't going to make all of your mental health issues go away. Um, but it can be one thing in your in your toolbox or on your tool belt to help you deal with some of these issues. So I think the gratitude is so cute. Um, another creature that I think is so interesting is the shame wizard, um, who is actually voiced by someone who was in Harry Potter, so very fitting. Um, the shame wizard is a wizard who, who flies around and kind of whispers to the children, like, things that they should be ashamed of. And so the shame wizard differs from the anxiety mosquito because it's um, very targeted to like comments about their bodies or comments about um, like things that you would feel ashamed about, whereas the anxiety mosquitoes are the the range is is boundless. <laughs> like they they make comments about everything and are worried about everything. But the shame wizard is a little more targeted, um, and we see that the the way that the ch so when the shame wizard makes his appearance in I want to say the second or third season, he he has like a quite a hold on the children and is he's visiting each child and telling them all these different things about themselves that are causing them to react to with shame and to withdraw from one another because they are afraid of judgment or, or being shamed by the other children. Um, but that at the end of the season where they're dealing with him, they learn the best way to combat the shame wizard is to be open about what they're ashamed about. That when they all were able to say like, hey, basically they say like, hey, the shame wizard said that to me too. They were able to see that it was like a universal experience and that there wasn't much truth to what the shame wizard was saying because when they said it out loud, then the other kids could say like, no, that's not what we think. Um, and so that's kind of how they defeat the shame wizard is like by banding together and being able to kind of confront and be, be open about what they, they feel ashamed about. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And the shame wizard, he, he keeps coming back. He is, I think it's interesting that he's shown to be a character that they, um, never really quite get rid of. And that there is an episode in one of the later seasons where, He's actually shown to be helpful, and having a little bit of shame about things can help you to see things more realistically. Um, and the shame wizard is the most humanistic of the creatures, and so I think that's why um, he's so he can be useful. Um, but he also has to be reminded that he's only useful in very small chunks, and he can be banished when he's no longer useful. Um, but again, it you know taking this experience that I think. I I would assume is universal that at this age, right? That like when you were 13, you probably had a lot that you felt ashamed about. 
um, and, and taking this experience, externalizing it, and then also reminding us that everyone else was feeling that way, right? And that we didn't need to be alone in that. And that as an adult, as adults, we don't need to be alone in that either, right? That shame can serve to isolate us from each other, to put up barriers. Um, but when we are able to peek around those barriers and be a little bit vulnerable and step into the light and be honest, um, the shame will dissipate and we can kind of have a collective experience together. So that's what I think is really cool about the shame wizard. Um, another humanistic <laughs> creature is the menopause banshee <laughs> and menopause banshee plays like a very small role uh, in that she visits Andrew's mother and is seen to be like causing some mischief as Andrew's mother approaches menopause um, but I, and I only mention her because I thought it was so interesting that they included these kind of like creatures for the adults as well um, I think one, it shows that development doesn't end, right? Like we, as children, we experience it as puberty, but as we keep going through life, our hormone monsters, if you will, adapt and change. As adults, we settle into identities in different ways and settle into like our, our sexuality in different ways, um, but that we continue developing and that we do reach not, I don't want to say it's the end of puberty, but we we reach like a shift in the way that we develop, and for um, you know for female female bodies or for some uh, women, it looks like menopause. And so I thought it was so interesting that the show also gave like older adults the uh, this interaction with the creatures in the same way that their children are going through it. Um, although it does appear that the children are able to see <laughs> the adults' creatures, whereas the adults are not able to see the children's creatures, but I digress. Um, the last two concepts uh, were in the last season, so if you haven't watched the last season yet, you may not be aware of this, but um, I thought these were interesting. They're hate worms and love bugs, and we come to see that hate worms and love bugs are the same creature, just transformed by either hate or love. So the love bugs show up for the kids when they start to develop truly romantic feelings for one another, not just like driven by hormones and a, a more physical experience, but a, a, a romantic, more intimate connection with each other. The love bugs show up and begin to shine when the children, uh, you know, find who they love, essentially. Um, and the love bug and the hormone monster are shown to be sometimes in conflict and it introduces another complex layer of now the child is having to have a conversation with the love bug and the hormone monster about how to proceed um, with like pursuing the person they want to pursue. Um, because the hormone monsters are like pretty open to engaging with anyone, whereas the love bugs are more particular and we see them only like light up and shine for certain people. Um, and that even if your love bug is shining, it doesn't necessarily mean that the other person loves you or that the other person's love bug is shining. Um, so that 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 adds this whole new dimension of things that the kids are dealing with and navigating not, not just only feeling physically attracted to to someone else, but also like emotionally and dealing with um, like those 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 big feelings. So those are the love bugs. Now the hate worms come into play, partic they're particularly relevant for Missy and Nick who uh, really go through it in the last season, and the hate worms are shown to be 
um, love bugs that have been damaged. So in Nick's case, um, he has fallen in love with Jesse. His love bug is, you know, shining and bright. Uh, Nick is rejected by Jesse, and in his kind of anger and disappointment, his love bug essentially Nick becomes radicalized into an incel. <laughs> And in the process, his love bug um, is kind of corrupted. We see its its wings fall off, his antenna break off, and one night he is transformed into this hate worm. And everything before that the love bug would have said was like wonderful about Jesse and Nick. Now the hate worm is saying the opposite and saying like how horrible she is. Um, and and Nick spends a lot of that season saying like very disparaging things about her and about women in general. Um, and Missy, uh, her hate worm actually comes to her without her knowing that it is a love bug. Um, and she, uh, she gets encouraged by the hate worm to engage in things like spreading rumors, gossiping. Um, this is when she starts to shut out her parents. She shuts out a lot of her friends. She becomes very isolated. And we see that the hate worm really serves to insulate the child from a lot of their important relationships. And if there's one thing that the show is consistent with, it's that in pretty much every season that the children are shown that like being around other people, having social support is one of the most important things. And that's one of the ways they combat, right? They combat shame, anxiety, depression, um, and then the hate worms, they combat by having other people that they connect to, but that the hate worms are working really hard to keep them separated from others. And I, I, I think it's just, it is so interesting that the creators made the love bugs and the hate worms be the same creatures. Um, and then in fact, Missy's hate worm is eventually turned back into a love bug as Missy reconnects with people. And is able to say, like, no, I don't hurt these, hate these people. I was just hurt by them and that really I do care about them. And her hate worm transforms back into a love bug. Um, and, and I thought it was so interesting that the, the creators made these the same creatures because I think something we see in our culture a lot is that hate and love being the opposites uh, two, or two sides of the same coin. Um, but I think this showed it in a really interesting way where hate was not just the opposite of love, but was a corrupted version of love that, you know, for Nick, his obsession had been with Jesse, his love for Jesse, but that became corrupted into this hate for Jesse. And he becomes like fixated on her that she's like a horrible person. He's still fixated on her. It's just the content of his fixation has changed. He it's, but the presence of it is still there. And the same with Missy is that these people that it's mostly other girls in the class that, that she's having so much trouble with. Those are the people that she wants to have in her life that are her support, that she does care about very deeply. And those are the people that become kind of like the focus of her, her ire. Um, and the, the, throughout the show, the worms are shown to grow larger. The more the kids engage in hate, the more they, you know, spread rumors or say nasty things about each other, the bigger the worms get. And the bigger the worms get, the more able they are to keep the children away from each other. Uh, and it's not until the child has some sort of breakthrough experience where they're e either able to separate from the worm or transform the worm back into the love bug. Um, again, it's just, you know, I know it's like a silly cartoon and it's a little bit gross because there are like lots of poop jokes and, and farts and 
you know, body part jokes, um, but it, it really is quite profound. And I think that sometimes we need these like really simple concepts, again, externalized from ourselves to be able to better understand um, these big issues. And so I really appreciate that the show makes space for that. And I think that it generates um, more ability to have conversation because it's, it's kind of packaged these, these concepts in, in ways that are more accessible. Um, but I've now talked about Big Mouth for over an hour, so I think this is a great place to stop. Um, again, if you haven't watched the show, I do recommend it. The episodes are only like 20 minutes, so it's pretty easily digestible, and this, the seasons are pretty short. Um, but, you know, as most of us have <laughs> finished puberty <laughs> for the most part, it's a, it's a good retrospective. Um, it is, you know little raunchies and the content may not necessarily be for everyone um but the concepts are are very interesting and i think the 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 opportunity it gives us to process through some of the experiences we we had when we were that age is i think invaluable um so i for one will be continuing to watch through the sixth season but i just wanted to you know cover this real quick in this episode, um, I, I am working on some episodes in the future that will deal with content that is made for teens in, in this age range and why I think it is bad content. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I'm still working on those, those things. So those, those will be coming up soon. Um, but I am feeling inspired as we continue through the new year. I have lots of topics that I want to talk about. As always, if there's anything that you want to hear about on the pod or any questions you have for me, please feel free to email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you and, you know, maybe send me some of your thoughts on Big Mouth. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't, but either way, I'm happy to sit in the disagreement we may have um, and, and hear from you all. So once again, I thank you for sticking with me and listening all the way through, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.